Welcome back to the Security Conversations podcast. My guest this week is Alex Matrosov. When you think about hardware and firmware security and security below the operating system layer, and you think about an expert in this area and someone who's been working on this for two decades, you think of Alex Matrosov. Alex, thank you for coming on the show. Welcome aboard. How are you? Thanks, Ryan, for having me. I'm pretty good, but I don't know how the industry feels about the firmware threats. So talk to me, we want, I want to get into, there's been a lot of uh, noise and activity around, you know, firmware threats and, and threats below the operating system. There's a lot of noise around supply chain and hardware implantation and all that noise and all that happy stuff. So help me understand what's really going on. But before we start, can you define what firmware means? Like when you say, when, when, the, when the term firmware threats are thrown out, what does it mean? <laughs> so that's a great question. I would say like, okay, we have the software on operating system level but firmware it is also piece of the software which is like kind of a middle layer between operating system and the hardware it's need to be provide the feedback loops from the hardware side to the operating system layer and it's also uh, defines a lot about like let's say kind of like data centers software defined uh, networks activities and a lot of a lot of other stuff and firmware is became kind of very important it's growing every year and if you look on the modern UEFI firmware it's like over the se- 6 7 million lines of code in modern days and it's a lot it's like operating system uh, itself on your uh, hardware executing before the main operating system is started. You still haven't defined it yet. Like you, you, you've, you've complicated it even a, li- a little more there because. <laughs> Sorry about that. But no, 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 yeah. no, no, no. I, I mean, this is exactly the problem. The problem is it's so very difficult to define what really is firmware security and what is hardware security and where it does where hard. does the line blur between what is software, firmware, hardware, operating system becomes very difficult for the average defender to understand. And my podcast is is a, is a podcast. The audience are CISOs and defenders trying to understand at a very high level, what does the threat landscape look like at this layer? What should be my priorities? And how should I go about defending the layer of firmware? And if we can't define it properly or even identify what it is, then it's very, very difficult to defenders to come up with strategies. Does that make sense? That totally makes sense. And I would say, yeah, let's let's define something. And I would say, let's start defining the firmware uh, from impact, which is an attacker can basically make it. And I think it's most important thing for the CISOs and security folks right, to hear about. So, and if you're talking about the firmware, it's always about the persistence or somehow by passing the security level from the operating system level and some other stuff, right? Basically, uh, the firmware, it's a thing itself, which is, can be used uh, from the malicious purposes, if the attacker will be able to modify it somehow, uh, the common word implanted, right, for that, and uh, execute the malicious code on the firmware level to pursue some strategy, maybe to implant in the operating system uh, for bypassing some security layers like um, endpoints or like operating system protections, something like that. If you look on modern Microsoft Windows Defender updates, they focus it a lot on the firmware security, especially because of that. Uh, if you look on the Apple products, they've been protecting the firmware very hard, but it's still a lot of vulnerabilities exist even on the Apple side, like T2 chip uh, became very famous uh, 
on exploiting Checkmate, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I'm glad you brought up Microsoft. And, and this is the reason I wanted us to really dig into what the definitions are and how are we defining it? Because Microsoft put out a report much recently that said 83% of businesses have been hit with a firmware attack over the last two years. 30% of these organizations are not allocating as much security budget to protecting this layer. When you hear that 83% of all businesses have been hit by a former attack over the last two years, does that, does that resonate with what your level of, I mean, I don't expect you to have visibility on what's happening globally, but does that strike you as an accurate thing? Uh, I don't have enough data to say yes or no, uh, but that's... Uh... Sounds tricky to me because, first of all, we need to define the threats, right, for these numbers. What kind of threats we feel uh, like is relevant for this type of statistics. I look to the report, I don't really find this type of the definition. And if we think about the threats, even unpatched firmware on the machine can be potentially a threat, right? And uh, of course, like if you're talking broadly about unpatched systems in any enterprise ecosystem, it's a lot of them, and these numbers can be relevant. But if you're talking about, let's say, uh, stealth implants provided by state-sponsored attackers or cyber criminals, I don't think these numbers will be accurate. Uh, but I don't know. I don't have much telemetry to confirm or... <laughs> If you're a CISO and you're responsible for protecting an organization, what, where would you, Alex, as a, as a former hardware security expert, where would you recommend the priority be placed to try to get a sense of what my attack surface is at the former layer and what it, well, how can I set up a, a security posture that gives me a certain level of confidence? Does that, is, that even, is that even something that's practical? That's a very good question. But I think for uh, CISOs, it's much more uh, important always to protect uh, more high-level stacks, right? Because first of all, where the majority of the impact happens, and we still have like... Uh, uh, spread phishing attacks, which is get successful. We have like a lot of users use uh, unpatched Chrome's in the corporate Correct. environment. There's enough attack surface. They... That there's so much attack surface at the top yeah, that like, exactly. why do people have to go to the complicated level of, of, of doing firmware implantation? I don't think we have enough telemetry data, which is looks convincing for uh, CSS right at the moment. But I would say if this CISO from the large enterprise company, which is cares about the data center security and a lot of other things, that can be make sense to understand the impact can be created. Let's say like um, you have the malicious update coming from the, like let's say we have an update, which is potentially can be malicious, came uh, for your firmware and data center and then you check the update, it doesn't look, uh, uh, it's basically don't alert or hurt your eye from malicious standpoint of view, but then you basically apply this on the thousands of the machines and data center and boom, right? So it will be ransomware inside. And uh, like somehow you need to understand if this firmware update uh, is not malicious. And if you're talking about the integrity checks or like known issues checks for this update, it isn't enough, basically, because like you don't have enough telemetry data uh, from the code level. And second, uh, like uh, think about the supply chain, right? So nowadays, any vendor can be just attacked and uh, 
somehow malformed uh, firmware updates because like attacker can sit on his build server for a while. And if you look on the ransomware attacks on the hardware industry, it's been like Acer, Asus, uh, being not with the ransomware, but with uh, uh, Shadowhammer. Right. So, and a lot of other this happens, which we don't know. Yeah, that means the attacker being on the infrastructure somehow accessed to the infrastructure, and like who knows if it's not only ransomware being there. Right. The best uh, probably example. Uh, everybody already tired to hear about the solar winds, but still, right? So solar winds. I don't know how I, it's been not spoken much, but solar winds actually been able to deliver updates for the network appliances too. Yeah, it's a, it's a it's a significant problem, and and here's the complication I have with understanding landscape of hardware security and firmware security is you guys the experts constantly say you do black hat talks and you describe this threat this threat vector you describe this landscape and everyone says oh my god it's 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 just ripe for ripe for malicious activity it's ripe for attack a lot of vulnerabilities in the code millions of lines of code that haven't been looked at no one has properly pen tested it we don't even have the kinds of tools and techniques to look at it it's bad right we all accept that it's bad but at the same time, I have only heard about maybe five live in the wild firmware attacks. If it's so bad, why isn't it so, why haven't attacks been proliferating at record rates? Help me understand what's real and what's not. Oh, that's actually a very great question. I really like it. And uh, <laughs> you're absolutely right. It's not bit much catch it in the wild. And if you look on these attacks, uh, even let's start from 2014 uh, hacking team implant and RK loader not being very advanced, right? So it's been straight, pretty straightforward and looks like being created for some particular targets uh, in purpose. But if from detection point of view, it's been easy, right? So you have a like extra module which is feasible, like an extra goods and a lot of a lot of stuff, which is basically create some very uh, useful artifacts for detection. If you think uh, like on mosaic regressor, it's just like a fork of the hacking team implant, so nothing user. I I would say most probably advanced one which we've seen it's abusing the compute trace and logics, and uh, it's been surprisingly complex compared to others, but it's also not a rocket science. I would say the technology they've been used, been known by researchers for a while. And core security core security presented at CANSEC 12 years ago. This, uh, the, I remember Lojack oh, exactly. and Computrace of vulnerability research being presented. Yeah, look 10, at my research, uh, like uh, uh, myths and realities about the rootkits. Uh, uh, U5 firmware rootkit. So basically, we've been talking about the compute trace problems where, like, a lot of firmware has downgraded, not downgraded, not updated version of the compute trace, and then it can be abused. And uh, nobody hears like us. You know, we like try to communicate with the vendors, and like, probably licenses expired or something happens, but it stay for a while. And I would say, uh, surprisingly, like uh, some of uh, very known uh, <laughs> vendors don't want to point the fingers, still have outdated computerized versions. Yeah, no, no, that continues to be a significant problem. But it, it comes back, uh, let me come back to the question now. Are there a lot more malicious activity at that level we just aren't seeing? And why aren't we seeing it? Is this a people problem or a tools problem? You know, the traditional way of relying on traditional endpoint security, endpoint uh, protection products 
to look for threats across the landscape. Are they, is that the level that, I mean, help, help me understand why we're not seeing more. Yeah, I think the nature of the firmware threats is a bit different. And I would say purpose uh, for uh, for the attacker, it's also different. First of all, it's like uh, be stealth and persistent, right? So if we're talking about the firmware threats, I would back to the time when we've been struggling about detection of the bootkits and like stealth rootkits like a TDL, right? So if you look on the industry, when first time being Rooster discovered, right? So it's been months in the wild, right? and how hard it has been detected, right? So, and uh, why actually uh, back to like uh, early 2000s, it's been a lot of rootkits and bootkits in the wild. First of all, it's more about the persistence. That time it's been a lot of DDoS uh, bots uh, happening, right? So it's a lot of spam activity and all these like cyber criminal groups developing the rootkits been focused on persistence because they like... If they persist uh, a lot of say, time, yeah. And when you say persistence, you mean invisibility, which means yeah, that course. when so. you say persistence, the whole idea is not to be found, right? Like that's the perp- like. Yeah. Are, are we equipped? Are we equipped as an industry to even pinpoint and find these things with existing tools and existing mechanisms? So. Uh, it's exactly what happening with the firmware, right? So this type of rootkits and bootkits been staying in the wild like for months and sometimes for the years. It depends which thread we're talking about. And uh, also like uh, antivirus, like endpoint industry been not reacting very quickly, right? So it's been years uh, happening when we get all these modern anti-rootkit solutions, uh, host intrusion prevention system, and still it's been a ways to buy it before actually Microsoft start creating some of complications on the Windows operating system design level. And still, uh, you can use a kernel mode exploit uh, to execute arbitrary some code and implant, let's say, maybe not persist, but implant for runtime some malicious uh, code uh, into the kernel. Basically, uh, what's been happening I, I would say it's very uh, interesting parallel with the firmware threats, right? Because uh, the goal for the attacker is stealth and persistent. So, and uh, it's mostly needed for, let's say, uh, targeted from that standpoint. And I think it's one of the reasons why we didn't see much uh, examples of this type of the threats. First of all, uh, probably the companies can detect them but they can't spoke publicly about that because it's kind of like a serious state-sponsored activities which need to be uh, properly investigated, right? So you think that there's a lot of state-sponsored APT-type activity at this layer that is not going reported and it's not being publicized? I assume too, yeah. And that's an assumption though, right? I mean, we, we, we are making that assumption just because we know that these adversaries are, that, that persistence at this layer is Im- incredibly important to certain level of adversaries, um, right? Let's say uh, somehow uh, the level of security on the firmware uh, opening uh, like a huge attack surface, right? So an exploitation on the firmware level 
to get to the operating system level, sometimes it's easier, right? Really? Explain that. Why is it easier? Oh, that's a tricky question. I think we're getting in the product security conversation right now, right? No, I'm, uh, just, I'm curious. <laughs> I'm curious why you say it's easier to go from below to above when in the same in the same conversation you talked about uh, spear phishing and people clicking on links is still an easy way to infect the machine. It depends also on the, let's say uh, the level of. Uh, uh, cybersecurity and type of campaign as well, right? Yeah, 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 of course, yes. Of course, if you like, if it's like zero click thread coming to your inbox, what you can do. Yeah, but wait, can you go, go back a little bit to why you think it's easier and, and to go the opposite yes. direction? So, because like uh, in, let's say, uh, involvement of uh, mitigations and uh, security protection uh, layers on modern operating system, it's much more, especially on the Microsoft Windows, like it's much more uh, difficult to exploit or like gain a persistent on a kernel mode level. But if you abuse somehow the driver, which is can get an access to the physical memory and write to the BIOS region, you can reach another attack, uh, like another security boundary, which is not that good protected. And actually, that's a very interesting point. Also, like I've been talking in my keynote on uh, Platform Security Summit, uh, I think back to 2019, uh, where I said like, okay, the firmware can be used as a trampoline for the attacker to bypass some of the hypervisor uh, layers. Mitigations, right? so, and some of the mitigations yes. there can be used as kind of uh, like memory a Memory isolation, let's say right. this way. Basically, you have isolated virtual machines somehow but if this virtual machine uh, doesn't protect well uh, some of the hardware ports and it's still possible potentially to write to these ports, so you can basically reach to the firmware and attack from the firmware back. And the firmware creates a different security boundary, which is not... It, which is, has a different definition of security and attack surfaces compared to operating system level, which is basically crossing very interesting point where the attacker basically go to the different location on your system and try to come back from this location to attack more weak attack surfaces on uh, uh, on the higher high, 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 higher level stack of operating system or hypervisor, whatever. Are you starting to see this kind of uh, activity uh, popping up in offensive uh, circles? Uh, I don't, but potentially it can be. So uh, I would say, like, let's say, like, proof of concept, of course, exists, but I didn't see real threat uh, like that in the wild. But it potentially can happen. And if you think more, like a lot of servers. Uh, can deliver the firmware from, let's say, Docker container or like virtual machine. So that means they have ability to open the hardware ports to write to the firmware, which is create very interesting complications uh, of uh, of really interesting point of security where you somehow you you isolate it from the host, but you still can reach some of the hardware, right? So right, basically. Right. Naturally, if you're talking about the virtual machines, of course, if you want performance, you need to pass through some of the devices to your virtual machine, right? Let's right. say you want to have very fast network or something like that. I, I, I can't have you on this podcast without asking this question. When you first saw the Bloomberg story about the grain of rice um, on, 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 on motherboards, what was your first reaction? One, 
And is that a, a realistic threat in today's computing environment? I would say um, the threat, it's realistic. Problem is, it's not been enough technical details to say the story is true. Or false either. There's not enough yeah, to say so, it's false yeah, either. Yeah, because like uh, as a hardware researcher, I understand uh, it can be. Okay, so, so help us understand that. So as a hardware researcher, theoretically at an academic level, what they described is possible. Yes, and actually Trammell Hudson proves that, right? So he gave a talk uh, on uh, Chaos Communication Congress when he tried to prototype the same thread and he actually succeeded. Do we have tools, techniques, and people to identify that if it actually, if, if something like that comes to fruition? Or... Uh, is that already happening that we just have zero visibility on? It's very hard to validate this type of threads, right? So basically you have like uh, thousands of the components across like uh, just a normal motherboard, right? So, and if you're talking about servers, it's much more complicated. You have, you have like a smart network adapters, you have like uh, GPUs, you have like a lot of, a lot of different chips around and all of them can have a firmware and it's even more, not more, about the chips, like single, uh, like what you said, like about piece of rice, this type of chip, it's not a chip, but it's piece of silicon can have some logic, which is can maliciously abused, right? How would you describe the level of product security and SDL type implementations around the creation of firmware and firmware code? Are we where we were, say, in 2000s in the Windows world where things were... <laughs> I would say SDL doesn't work without enforcement, right? So basically, you can uh, teach your developers how it's good to write the good code, write code for, from security point of view, or like how they need to basically write their uh, safe memory allocators. But, uh, you know, like product teams always has a, like a tight deadlines. It's always difficult. So I would say people as people, they basically want to reach their goals and developers not equal security people, right? So they're thinking about different type of goals. They, of course, like willing to follow like SDL practices, but it's not like without enforcement, you can uh, try to make it productive in your company. So I would say, and what the enforcement can be, right? So you can use a static analysis tools, let's say like a coverage or some others. Problem with the static analysis tools, it's a lot of blind spots for them. Let's say like you have a memory allocator, then developer wrap it out some code around this memory allocated and create a custom one. Does uh, coverage will be from, from the box detect this type of activity if it's been wrong? Some of them can be, but in many cases it will be failed to detect uh, wrong allocator. Just a good example of that, it's bad alloc, uh, which has been discovered. Uh, By Microsoft like, just this week, right? In the IoT world, right? Yeah, exactly. And it's like... It's the same series of memory safety, it's the same series of memory safety vulnerabilities, the, the, the kinds of memory safety vulnerabilities that have haunted computing since God knows what, the 1990s. 
are the same types of things we see popping up in firmware. Uh, like Baralok is a great example of how memory safety haunts us here. And we get a very great point why we have less mitigations on the firmware compared to operating system. You tell me why. So it's is it just because it's kind of largely been is it because it's largely <laughs> big enough forgotten a forgotten area and there's just been too many other priorities? Uh, I would say it's all about the goals, right? So and if we're talking about like mainstream hardware development company which is just like developing a laptop or something like that, what they care about, they care about performance. When you're opening your lid of the laptop, how fast the screen how will fast be it can pop up, right? Yeah, exactly. And it's like most of the companies from Taiwan, they don't have any security people, you know? They just don't. When you're reporting the vulnerability to them, they not understand what, what's the problem in the code. And know? that's a reality of computing across the board. I mean, there are there are there are exactly. there are big laptop makers and, and, and technology makers who have a lot more mature programs. And I'm not beating up on people who have done a lot of investment. I mean, like, listen, I'm an ex-Intel employee. I know as much as Intel has had its problems with security and continues to have its problems with security, like I know the level of investment that the company makes around its oh, resource yeah. processes and all the hard work that goes in. And, and a lot of these big vendors, Acer, and a lot of these big places, it's not fair to say they don't take security seriously because they do, a lot of it do. But like you, like we started with the definitions earlier around what firmware is. Firmware is everywhere it's in your car microwave here uh, they're everywhere you know we're not talking about the companies doing uh, nothing about security they actually does but you're talking about the firmware about... creators right no no we're talking about actually implementation of actual uh um, let's say uh, security practices and all this stuff because like let's say we have a brilliant architect designing security feature right so it's perfect looks on paper but when it gets to implementation, it's a different team will be working on it to implement it. And let's say some of the concepts which his architect did, it doesn't fit to reality and it's basically somehow reworked. And it will be different type of implementation. And if nobody will be look how this fits to actual design uh, before product will be released, that will be a problem potentially. And uh, also, we get, let me actually back to the point about enforcement uh, for checking, like trust but check about how your teams follow into security development life cycle practices and how your static analysis tools automation is actually work, right? So you need to have uh, some type of like expertise in your company, uh, which is enough, uh, like, let's have, have enough skills to check your security features is actually working correctly. Uh, and I would say, we're talking about the offensive research teams, right? So, and I would say in nowadays, it's super important to for uh, any uh, large enterprise companies to have such as a team because it's super important feedback loop between your technology and reality, right? So, because you can have like, perfect design, but you don't have understanding how it is implemented and actually implementation fits design requirements, right? So, because if we're talking about the functional testing, when uh, we're running the functional test to check the hardware it works, it's different. We don't have the functional test for the security features. We just know it is enabled and working. 
that's it. Right, right. And then and and customers and end users are not going to absorb performance hits. So the notion, oh, yeah. right, the notion of slowing down a machine to get to put up a security boundary is not acceptable. I mean, that's that's why we ended up with big, big hardware security problems. Exactly. And you know, uh, also, uh, if you think about, it's not enough data. Uh, for checking, uh, creating the tests for uh, security features. Let's say you need to evaluate somehow secure boot uh, implementation. You need to have a bypasses of your own secure boot implementation to create this such of the tests, right? How you will do it? If you don't have offensive researchers, basically, of course, you can create kind of like a dirty POC from the development team, but it will be different. It's not because they are not knowledgeable enough. It's just different perspective. Offensive researchers, and uh, if we're talking about security researchers, they have just different type of the mindset, which is able to understand somehow like hidden attack surfaces, which is not very feasible for uh, normal development teams. Are we benefiting from security by obscurity? I mean, hardware and firmware and and, and that mixed mash of code at that layer, I've heard it described uh, as an alphabet soup of complexity there that not many people, even at the vendors themselves, understand. It figures that attackers as well, especially, you know, low down, not Apex type attackers, APT attackers, but low down, low down on, the, on the pyramid, are less likely to go to that layer. We benefit from that too, right? Unfortunately, yes. Uh, let's say, like, uh, like if we're talking about the hardware, usually it's not much documentation the vendors is sharing, right? So it's not much information about... And that's part of, of the like, problem like, too, right? Part of the problem yeah. too is that the documentation is lacking and we just don't have the skills and the expertise to know how to look or even where to look oh, yeah. because we just it's just way too complicated and complex. Yeah, and uh, basically it's creating the point when... Uh, technology not well understood and it's additional effort for the attacker to reverse engineer the technology first then attack. So basically it's create somehow not additional level of protection, but some vendors believe it is, right? Because first of all, like it's need to get an extra time to break uh, this technology first to understand and then attack. But they need to do just once, right? And it's a, create a huge difference. It's not to, to be reverse engineered always from scratch, right? So you need to make reverse engineering investment once, then you can go and attack. But uh, also, it creates somehow layer when um, people with, um, let's say, not very deep knowledge about reverse engineering can get in the uh, in the space for poking around this type of attacks. Uh, second, also like access to the hardware, it's create a different type of the problem, right? So it's uh, just expensive, because- right? It, it it becomes like IG even access to 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 physical things to do research becomes prohibitive because it's expensive and and a lot of the newer ones are not even available for people like you to play with. And if you're talking about the combination of like when you basically break in the hardware for executing some software bug, then uh, on your experiments, you can actually burn right, a lot right. of uh, boards. So. Do you view physical access to the machine as a security boundary? Uh, I don't think so. 
Yeah, because uh, nowadays, so first of all, like uh, life cycles of the hardware, it's pretty tight, right? So, and you can find a lot of stuff on eBay and some other markets, which is not that feasible as eBay. So, okay, I want to, we we're up against the half hour mark. So I want to, I want to let you out here with a couple of questions. We, we talked about how uh, this layer is so obscure, there's lack of documentation, not a lot of ability for uh, folks to go looking. If you were to recommend to young security researchers, because we have tons and tons of security researchers playing in this bug bounty world, focused on web app stuff. If you could help a security researcher understand how can I break into this level, this area, where like are there are there specific books, courses, things that someone can do to kind of get their feet wet around hardware security, or should um, they not care because this is an area that's just way too complicated and, and and complex for them to understand? No, I don't think so. It's actually good to have a new uh, fresh minds in the area. Yes. How do we but attract more people to it when there's no uh, documentation, the tools aren't available, the skills aren't there? That's the point why they're looking to uh, web, actually. Economic uh, incentive. <laughs> there's an economic <laughs> yeah, incentive. exactly. It's because of the bug bounties, right? So they pay money, it makes them more attractive it's a lot of bug, but There's a lot of bug bounty money in hardware security too. Intel pays millions and millions of dollars. I'm sure there are a lot of big, other big vendors you know that pays a uh, lot of money. I would say hardware vendors, it's much less flexible on their bug bounties. Sometimes it just privately invites the researchers. That's mean you need to really have a proven track in the industry to get in. So it's not very relevant for the new people. And uh, also I would say um, probably to start, let's say I want to start to break into well, the let me, let me pause right? there. Let, can I pause there for one second? Shouldn't the vendors be doing better though at attracting more eyeballs to their code and attracting more eyeballs to their... To their I mean, what it, the vendor's goals, right? So if they create a bike bound... Hey man, hey man, shouldn't the vendors... Wait a second, <laughs> wait a second. Let's go back up at a higher level. Shouldn't the vendor's goal be aligned to securing their platform and making secu- making things more secure for all of us? Isn't that like the goal? Like at, at some point, we have to come to some moral baseline of what we're here for, right? So uh, let's, I think <laughs> the best thing to understand what the bug bounties stand for, right? So, and basically it's it can be a lot like, different types of motivations for the vendor. First of right, all, right. you can basically get, a, uh, in terms of payment, uh, you can get a cheap crowd to look on your attack surfaces, right? It's what's happening on the web. Uh, second, it's like, okay, I need to somehow attract the research community and uh, also maybe to hire some people from there. And bug bounty can be one of the uh, programs to create some type, some such of the bridge with the research community, right? Uh, and uh, third one, when you really want to uh, get uh, different points of view on your attack surfaces, right? And uh, it's three totally different type of the motivations. And somehow it can be all also like only PR, right? Uh, let's say uh, the company announcing like a bug bounty and it's can be looks very interesting from the media perspective. And of course, we'll be creating a lot of noise and it can create a profile for the companies they take care about security, right? So Yeah, it's very, very difficult to get motivated to do this stuff when, like we discussed earlier, documentation from vendors are lacking, a lot of, you know, a lot of roadmaps to understand how these things work or how they're implemented. It's just impossible yeah, to find. Let me tell you my path, actually, because... Uh, 
nobody being born by an expert in the area, right? So I was patient in reverse engineering. I've been dedicated a lot of time to reverse engineer like complex threads on operating system level, like uh, boot kits, root kits, and some advanced persistent malware there. And then I just got tired because it's been not very attractive, not new tricks much. It's basically been always looking the same way. It's been, of course, like new operational things came up uh, on the radars, but it's been not much technological challenges for me to research them. And I was thinking, okay, maybe like I need to look something else. And I started researching on the hardware and firmware threads, especially I basically came to the hardware over the firmware. So I go from operating system level to the firmware and then actually to the hardware. And it was interesting because how actually I get interested in the firmware, especially because of the secure boot. Secure boot start, start mitigating the boot kits and I was interested. Okay, something next one will be break, start breaking the secure boot and I need to learn about that more. And of course, like it's been like a very long learning curve and uh, it's a lot of things been done in this direction. But I think curiosity has been my main driver and uh, it's exactly what is uh, researchers been driven. Researchers been driven never by money. If you just think about like your end goal, gain a lot of money, you will be never like successful researcher, right? So yes, you can make some money, but you will be not a great researcher because your goal is different. It's not curiosity, it's money. And in fairness, it's getting better. And the more I look around, like if you look around Twitter, there's a lot more discussion and a lot more sharing of information around firmware security threats. There's a lot of new communities popping up. So there is a lot more interest and there are a lot more researchers looking in this area. It's just not enough. That's absolutely right. And I think the vendors need to be somehow more connected to the research uh, uh, community because we have a lack of documentation. We have a lack of resources. I mean, like hardware resources to research. And let's say for the large enterprises, if they can create kind of like a research programs, it will be much more interesting for the researchers, new researchers especially, to get uh, into the area, right? No, you make a good point. And one of the things I notice, especially around big vendor support for security research, is that a lot of it is geared towards the academic community. For good reason. A lot of the most amazing research comes out of the big, big, big universities doing, you know, some of the biggest bypasses and some of the most amazing things. But not a lot of this support goes to quote-unquote, offensive security research community. The, 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 the general run-of-the-mill hacker community that's focused on you know, bypassing things in other areas that the academics may be ignoring. And I feel like a lot of the big vendors turn a blind eye to the value of supporting this community. Is that a fair assessment? The academia uh, has a lot of uh, benefits, uh, especially of the time consuming, right? So because when you study in there and you have a goal, let's say finish your diploma or a PhD, you need to find something new. And it's kind of like a driver to probably get into the area where you can find new attack surfaces, problems to solve. And it's... No, I'm not not discounting discounting the value of it at all. I said, for good reason, they're spending a lot of their money and resources into supporting those communities. And on top of that, it's it's a big referral pool for talent and bringing a lot of like the most talented security researchers into your organizations. My argument is... I don't see these big tech companies 
doing the same level of support to the rest of security research, the rest of hacker hacker world in terms of helping them with documentation, giving them access to hardware, giving them access to some sort of virtualized environments to do things. That's what I think big vendors can do better at. Um, I agree with you, but it's also like about motivation. What will be motivation for the vendor, let's say, for open their hardware resources for Alex Matrosov to hack around? So they can get like a, a free security assessment or they can hire me. What the motivation will be, right? So I think it's more about like offensive security research community probably will be not accept many of the motivations which the vendors can pursue, right? <laughs> yeah, but I think I think you're discounting the intellectual challenge to offensive hacker security uh, uh, research community. No, no, I'm not talking about the money, but also like think about like if you work uh, on the research program with large enterprise vendor, it's a lot of limitation. So also create a lot of NDAs. And uh, uh, my personal, uh, actually, rule, I never participate on the private bug bounty. So because like I need to sign too much NDAs to do these bounties, and then it can be limit my uh, opportunities in other research programs. Why I should? Right, right, right. And it limits your opportunity to go do a black hat talk or to go share your research oh, with your peers. Mm, and not only talk, right? So even this can limit you to work as a contractor for your own research for, for right, other companies. Right, right. All right, let me switch gears and close with a last question on, on, on your advice for CISOs and defenders in the area of firmware security. Like, wow. Let me, let, let me actually finish with uh, your previous question and Go give ahead. an advice to junior researchers. So, First of all, you need to think about your end goal and uh, then basically create kind of a roadmap how you want to get to this end goal. And if it's end goal to, let's say, hack T2 chip or like some root of trust from attack surface from Microsoft or like uh, uh, any, anything else. So that's a great goal, but it's not will be reached really fast. And you need to understand that, but you need to create some small steps to go to this target and basically then you will be succeed. Because persistence and dedication, it's very important into the research, especially when you started to learn something new. And I, I wish you luck, and I hope we will have enough persistent researchers to get there. <laughs> is, there, is, there a, is there a single place to get for people to get started? Is there like a, a, a single place that you could recommend folks who just want to get started with understanding what this area of research is and what are some of these baby steps? Like you said, you know, take little baby steps. I think uh, the good point to start is just pick the right target. <laughs> First of all, you don't need to go crazy and try to hack, uh, which is pro promoted in the media as an unhackable device. Sometimes right. they are actually weak by design, but you never know how, how difficult it will be. So then you can basically pick something which already known, it's vulnerable, and uh, maybe try to downgrade the firmware to already patch it like vulnerabilities and try to poke around that's a good starting point and uh, basically without learning what happens before you get into the this research you will be never find something new you need to understand what has been done before and it's actually will be a starting point for anybody who wants to succeed there and of course like the hardware and firmware research 
It is uh, connecting a lot of different knowledge around operating systems about like a hardware and of course like uh, secure programming practices and a lot of a lot of other stuff. It's not only about like exploitation. It's really complicated area which is need a lot of other knowledge. And of course, like I would say. Uh, currently, we're getting in the space of confidential computing, where it became very important, and the isolation of the memory uh, regions, uh, and also basically uh, creating kind of like encryption on top of the memory. That's a super important, and I think it's something new which is need to be uh, hacked and improved. Because I would say new technologies never became perfect from the beginning. Are there one, two, three must-have tools that uh, someone coming into firmware hardware security should immediately learn? And what are those? Oh, tools? if you're doing UEFI research and uh, you need to <laughs> um, reverse engineer something with Ida Pro, try my UEFI Explorer tool. I think it's a, just a great plugin, and we try to develop there all this functionality which you need on the beginning to. Uh, to basically make your reverse engineering journey to the firmware much easier. But uh, also, I would say, like, of course, uh, somehow uh, you need to uh, uh, understand how you can reverse engineer, right? So I would say you can get some knowledge from the blog post, but IDAPRO, it's not like uh, only one tool in the market. You can get right, something right. which is open source and free like Ghidra and Ghidra have uh, awesome plugins like EFI Seek and uh, others for helping you to reverse engineer uh, firmwares uh, or you can go to the binary needs which is has an awesome intermediate representations which has created a lot of simpli simplifications sim let's say simplicity for uh, researching uh, vulnerabilities I would say it's very interesting time we live in. I wish I would have the same tool chain when I started my reverse engineering journey. Yeah, so so those are really really good advice for the kids. But, and I but for the firmware, like yeah, it it really depends on the target. I understand your question, but the right tool set. It's not like you have a, a Swiss Army knife for everything. Right? So it really depends which target you pick. But yeah. I think uh, why I uh, explain it from reverse engineering point of view, just because it's universal for any target. So I talk to a lot of CISOs and I talk to a lot of defenders, network, enterprise network defenders just say to me, I have so many problems to solve. Like, they, I, you know, my, my stack of priorities list is this long. Where do you, as a firmware security expert who fully understand the attack surface, the level of activity there, the ease of exploitation and all of that stuff. Where do you believe firmware security belongs on the priority list of the average CISO? Like, is it something they need to take with the highest possible priority? Is this something that should require more budget spend or more headcount spend? Help them understand what can I do right now to at least... <sighs> minimize my exposure to risk so first of all of course like uh, any CISA has a uh, budget limitations and a lot of other things they need to really think from uh, the attack surfaces and from which threats and which threat models they try to protect their companies right so Basically, if you are a CISO of the company, which is like managed a lot of uh, modern industry 4.0 manufacturing, so 
probably you need to care about the firmware threats and not only firmware threats. Think about how many these modern uh, manufacturing robots actually has the firmware itself uh, uh, in, in just one device. It's a lot. And uh, it's a lot of, uh, it's actually very difficult supply chain because you have a, let's say, Bluetooth chip uh, from one vendor. You have like a network uh, interface from another and you have uh, basically GPU from the different one. <laughs> so I would say it's really tied to threat modeling you create for your own company to protect or like uh, which type of threats you care about. I would say probably for not all of the CSS firmware should be on the first place, but if you basically think about the impact they can create it, what will be creating the impact for my company? It's what, what, what the CSS need to think about. Okay, if this... Uh, Thread can be can attack my manufacturing and my manufacturing will be stopped for a week. How much I will lose? That's exactly what they should think about. Or let's say uh, we have uh, some industrial controller in uh, some power plant can be attacked. What the impact should be there? Or like data center, right? I would say if uh, it will be a laptop of a single like a user in your network. Like probably the attacker will be find the easiest way to uh, to to get into this device. But anyway, firmware is creating so complicated and so critical attack surfaces for any CISA. It's really need to be under the radars uh, on the radars. So it's currently under the radars. Are there are, are there available tools? Are there available? I, I just feel like the average CISO understands that firmware security is very important to me. Big attack surface here. Okay, what do I do about it? And that's where it's just like, what does he do about it? They need to hire, like, CISO. <laughs> do, you understand, do, you understand, do you understand the complication, yeah. right? Yeah, of course. Like, and... Uh, yeah, oh, let, let's talk about that. Even you care about the firmware, and let's say you find the 10 servers in your data center where integrity is broken. What you should do? Yeah, you tell me. Yeah, okay, it's integrity <laughs> is broken. Okay, something happening, but what? What this CISA need to make, uh, uh, to investigate, to came uh, at the point they understand the impact being created by this firm. So I think it's very complicated. And uh, even if you care about the firmware without right people on board, or basically uh, how you will be protecting uh, your company from the firmware threats. Most of the products in the market that just care about the integrity checks. Okay, but Integrity, it isn't enough. It doesn't provide enough visibility to understand the impact. Are there are there enough telemetry and signals that come out of the firmware layer that can feed up into existing threat intel gathering? And and are there are is there are there like standardized ways to pull that telemetry uh, and figure out measurement? That's a very good question. That's a very good question. I would say. Uh, As I'm curious, if for, have... for the for 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 a mature modern threat hunter right getting sick if, if there's a lot of nefarious activity happening there and we really don't know how to look for it getting some telemetry and signals from there can help feed into some sort of data lake that can help me figure out something and my question to you is and i don't know con consider me i'm dumb as a rock so i don't know anything about anything 
Help me understand if there's enough signals and, and, and telemetry that can come upwards to feed uh, threat intel in a meaningful way. Mm, actually, I don't know any technology for the firmware threats uh, to do that. Yeah, I would say uh, the people I was... Uh, uh, well, you have to imagine about. this is what Microsoft is pulling a lot of data and telemetry from whatever their firmware uh, detection. Yeah, but still, it's like broken integrity, broken device health, or like your firmware is infected. It's not enough signals, right? So you need exactly to somehow classify the signals in different groups and categories to have enough information to understand what is going on, what happens, and basically what next actions and playbooks need to be used. And I think the main the main top factor for the CISA to also try to uh, protect the companies from uh, the firmware threats because it's no playbooks and it's nothing exists to understand what the next after company get compromised over the firmware, right? So basically, okay, like something happens, what we're doing next? Where do you That's see the main question not get answered yet? I know. Where, where where do you see this all heading? I mean, there's a lot of activity around um, responding to supply chain issues. A lot of it being led by government, there's going to be a millions and probably billions of dollars spent on securing this layer. So obviously, uh, you would expect that a lot of that budget spend and a lot of that money gets shifted out into security programs to do firmware detection, to do uh, firmware threat detection or threat hunting there, or some sort of activity there might become a normal part of a security program where it doesn't exist today. Do, do you have cause for optimism that as an industry, we're heading in the right direction in one, understanding the threats there, preparing to defend them and getting ahead of whatever might be coming? So uh, that's a very good question. So Sorry I think, for my uh, long-winded question, but I just want to get a sense of how, you know, what's the state of play today and where are we going? I think currently, uh, first of all, like it's a lot of investment on compliance, right, at the moment, right? So you uh, exactly covered, right, things about the firmware supply chain and kind of like uh, NIST doing a lot of standardization uh, about protection. And let's say it's type of the baseline need to be done. I would say... Uh, Unfortunately, uh, all the standards, it's a bit outdated from the reality because when they started and get finalized, it's a lot of uh, things happening, right? From my opinion, it's very good baseline need to be created, right? So because sometimes you pick the board, which is need to be used and then like which is promoted by the vendor for industrial environments, but this board, it just doesn't have like a basic protections, uh, uh, which is basically known from like early 2000. Yeah, and uh, I think like uh, compliance, it's one of the things which is can basically drive the firmware security across the industry, but compliance, it isn't enough. If you think about it, it's just a uh, check, right? Checklist for like, okay, this is done, this is done, and uh, we are secure, but compliance doesn't make you secure. It's provide just a confidence level you secure at baseline level, but it doesn't make you secure. And that's where you see us heading, where it's all driven by compliance and not anything that is a lot more meaningful and practical. Yeah, compliance is good, but uh, if you think about like compliance, it's never enough, right? So you need to have, uh, first of all, like uh, 
proactive telemetry gathering from your network to understand the reality what's happening because compliance is static it's just happening once but you never like have a real-time data to understand what is going on uh, after you get this compliance do you think that the future of endpoint protection or the future of whatever next generation anti-malware service will automatically feature firmware protection especially for it should I hope that should be like standard part of your security suite, right? Yeah, exactly. It's need to be uh, a standard part, but uh, I would say the main thing it doesn't matter how many security features you have or like how many indicators you gather. The main thing which will be the next step for the industry how we are uh, processing this data, how we can find something malicious there, how the anomalies should looks like and a lot of a lot of other things which is important uh, on top of this uh, all, uh, all security protections which is can came from the vendors and that's very different from the existing way malware is analyzed and classified right and 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 just understanding and parsing that blah 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 of data that comes out of there that looks completely different from what analysts are used to looking at represents a challenge right yeah exactly and uh also if you think about like okay uh, you have uh ufi application which is can be run uh arbitrary from ufi shell or somebody can exploit ufi expo- application from the operating system level over the get set variable API. So UFI application, it's not privileged application. It's not getting into a system management mode and it's pretty like weak in the opportunity for the attacker. And I would say vulnerability there will be not classified as critical, right? And, uh, but if you think about what kind of happens, so the attacker can exploit this UFI application to persist or hide something from just normal operating system level, use this application to write into the firmware variable, and then it will be not uh, catch it uh, over like I don't know hooks from uh, interfaces on operating system level for endpoints or whatever. Yes, you can find probably this variable, but uh, you need to uh, look deeper. A lot of blind spots everywhere. Like that's that's oh, my yeah. big my big takeaway from this conversation. Just to wrap up this podcast, is like there's just blind spots everywhere at every layer of this ecosystem, and it'll oh, take a lot of work about... and a lot of investment to get ahead of whatever you know what firmware security looks like down the road. We need to first of all, we need really we need to make it more. Standardized, uh, like a standard for the industry, what we are doing for incident response, what we are doing for the investigations, how the threats can be looks like, what kind of telemetry can be gathered. So then basically these attack surfaces will be more feasible and understandable. So I would say uh, it's a lot of researchers in the area, but they work in separately on totally different things and research. They basically scraping the attack surfaces and just demonstrating the tip of the iceberg. Like think about like 2019 Black Hat, Alex Gazeta and me, we presented about embedded controller. We tested three platforms and we never think it will be affecting all the thing parts line from the fiddling over, right? So yeah. 
Alex, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Let me tell you something. Whenever I have to like write about hardware security issues or, or, or even listen to any sort of talk around hardware security issues, my ears usually start to bleed right before my eyes start to bleed because it's so <laughs> complicated and in many cases, very, very like dense, technical, sometimes boring stuff. But whenever I have a conversation with you, I feel like you bring this stuff to life and you explain it in very simple terms to help stupid people like me understand it. So thank you very much for that. Thank you very much, Ryan, for having me. And uh, I'm glad you <laughs> find my mindstream and <laughs> this podcast useful. So it was cool. Thanks, man. I enjoyed it. Thank you very much. 